This podcast is made possible by listeners who can contribute now at thestory.org and in collaboration by Burt's Bees, Red Hat, and the Redwoods Group Foundation, who believe by working together we can help strengthen communities for a better world. I'm Dick Gordon. This is The Story. As a part of our series, Reworking Jobs in America, we've talked with people who've lost work and some who've moved a long way from home to find it. The cleanup from Hurricane Sandy brought a lot of unexpected work to people in places like New Jersey and New York, and there's still lots of work for people who are willing. The Workers' Justice Project is a nonprofit organization that was set up years ago to make sure that immigrant workers were treated fairly and got decent wages. After the hurricane, the director of the project, Lihi Agualpa, said that her day laborers were like the first responders to the crisis. The Workers' Justice Project tries to organize jobs for people so they don't have to stand on a street corner or negotiate an hourly wage through the window of a pickup truck. Many of them are Latino, and some don't have the proper papers, but there is a demand for their work. We asked our producer, Sean Cole, to check it out, and they directed him to head down to the Bay Parkway Community Job Center. It's about 500 feet from the edge of Gravesend Bay. That's around the point from Seagate and Coney Island. A lot of seagulls. When they told me the Bay Parkway Job Center was a little red house by the water, I wasn't prepared for how little. It's a shack, maybe 8 by 12, with one window and a plexiglass door coming off its hinges. Hi. How are you? There are four workers inside, three guys and a woman, all waiting for Ligia Gualpa, the coordinator, to come so I can talk to them. She's bilingual, unlike the rest of us. She's also running behind schedule, so we all just sit there sort of frigidly. And that is not a metaphor. It's freezing in this shack. Is that a heater or is that a generator? There are two industrial heaters and a generator at our feet, but none of them are plugged in. For good reason, I found out later. Finally, a worker named Luis from Colombia and I make do in English as best we can. He shows me the clipboard full of job orders. Contract. Yeah. Uh, okay, so they fill out like a job description. What type of work, how many workers the client needs. About 30 laborers come through this center per week, maybe 500 in the past year. The center never asks them for their papers. In fact, it's a rule among the workers and the organizers not to talk about immigration status at all. I'm told that's up to the employers to chase down. The contract on top of the pile is a cleanup job in Seagate, which sticks all the way out into Gravesend Bay in Lower Brooklyn and was nearly appendectomied by the storm. Luis says you don't get contracts standing out on a corner and waiting for a random truck to drive up. When you sign up with the job center, you're guaranteed to get paid, treated well. You even get a lunch break if it's a full day. And as far as hurricane cleanup is concerned, he's got two words. More working. Before the, the tornado coming here, no, it's working, but the tornado coming... The hurricane. The hurricane coming, more working. And is it still still going on? Still cleanup, still demolition, or, or sometimes less? Different. Sometimes they concrete, sometimes they roofing. Mm-hmm. Different, different jobs. Different jobs. Are you working for people who have lost everything? You know... Uh, sometimes too much... Everything. Story, everything I wear, this, and something, the boot. You put boots on and gloves. Yeah, it smell, something like that. And smell like what? Yeah. And the smell, the basement. It's uh, sometimes the smell. Like mold? Yeah, mold, everything. 
He points to his jeans, says they're blue, but sometimes after working, they're yellow or black. Terrible. When Ligia Gualpa finally comes, she's on the phone. Something about looking at pictures, discussing it with the workers, inspecting the space. Turns out the job center might be buying a new, bigger home with some fundraising money that just came in. A trailer home. Because, as you can see, <laughs> we were also impacted. <laughs> By the storm, that is. Again, the shack is right on the water. So the storm hit the center, Yes. too. Yes. And what happened? What? Uh, how did it affect it? Well, one of the things is that this space is not safe anymore. This uh, space? This is space. We're in uh, a dangerous space right now. Because the walls are cracked. Oh. <laughs> you haven't seen it in the back there. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, but the walls are cracked. The floor was completely damaged. The infrastructure in itself is not safe. And um, our reg- generator that was giving us heat is no longer working, so we don't have electricity anymore. Uh-huh. Um, uh, we lost all like the materials, everything that we had in terms of equipment to get the center operating. So we kind of have to start like all over from scratch. So we just like cleaned the area. Actually, this floor was was picked up from the garbage. Really? Yeah. Wow. And Camilo and others, um, they helped to get the floor running. Camilo is one of the four workers sitting there with us. He takes me out to the sidewalk to show me where the shack used to be before the hurricane picked it up and deposited it into a nearby parking lot. Ligia translates. It was here. It was here? It was here. Oh, my God. See, you could see the frames there. It was here. Yeah. About 150 feet closer to the water. Then he walks me over to where it blew to. Oh, and you moved it back. I see. Wow, you guys were like Dorothy. (laughs) But you can't spend too much time fixing up your own little house when the whole reason it exists is to assign laborers to fix other people's houses. We know that the job is out there and the job needs to get it done, so we're down here. We, We try to keep the center open as many days as possible mm. and accessible to um, to contractors and homeowners. Um, there is a high demand to do the cleanup. There is a high demand to do demolition. There is a high demand to do Chirac. And obviously that has impacted the rates. Um, so the prices for a lot of this work has changed um, Slightly. Slightly. There's actually a big pricing chart on the wall behind us. On the left is a list of jobs, Tyler, Sheetrocker, Carpenter. And next to each is the fee per day and per hour. Only all the per day fees have been crossed out and replaced with higher ones. Luis and Ligia both pointed this out. Oh, this here is before. Now it's this new now. Oh, look at that. All right, so cement used to be 100 to 120, yeah, now, and now, now it's 180. Yeah, yeah. Demolition is 150 instead of 100 or 120. Uh, roofing is 180 instead of 150. Cement is 180 instead of 100 or 120. Um, and the reason for that is not just because of the supply and demand, but also because it's harder labor it's more dangerous. The exposure that they, they have to face by doing this dirty, greedy work, it's, it's very tough. And also we realize that our price rates um, has not been changed since 2002. Oh, really? <laughs> wow. So, we don't get a cost of living increase, I guess. So, and that was one of the conversations that we had. You can't leave, leave um, and pay your expenses by earning, you know, ninety, hundred dollars even the day yeah. when 
just for public transportation, you have to pay like six dollars. And all of this doesn't just mean more money for the workers; it means more money for their families back home in a lot of cases. The only female worker in our midst, Reina, sends home a couple hundred dollars a month. She's also from Mexico. For the whole time sitting there, I figured she did administrative work for the center. But she says no, no, she's a laborer. Trabajo. Trabajo. I work. <laughs> what what kind? De limpieza, demolición. Demolition. Okay, got it. Did you start doing it after the storm? Before? Después de la tormenta. After the storm. After the storm, you started doing cleanup and demolition <laughs> because of Sandy. Mm-hmm. And what what kind of work before? Antes qué tipo de trabajo hacía? House cleaning. House cleaning. Oh wow, wow. So this has changed your profession. This is a whole new line of work for you. So imagine house cleaning to demolition. Wow, that's quite something. And she ends up teaching everyone how to do it. You're, you're teaching everybody. Sí. A Don Camilo fue uno, verdad, Don Camilo? I first oh, no, started teaching Pedro. him. No, 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 hold on. It wasn't him. It was Pedro. I started ah. teaching how to do demolition to Pedro. Demolition. How is it that you knew and they didn't know? I was thinking how they were demolishing and cleaning and there was no advancement and I went on and get it done. (laughs) You are the grand matriarch. After all, reina in Spanish means queen and in Yiddish it means clean. Anyhow. But so what happens after after all the cleanup is done? Does that mean like... There's going to be not enough work anymore. Mm, bueno, the, this is Camilo again. So there, there is a still a little bit of cleanup. I mean, you know, some places are not completely clean. But now after the cleanup, there is the real hard work, which is like the reconstruction. Oh, rebuilding houses. Yeah. So this could last how much longer, dude? No sé exactamente, pero si... I'm not sure, but you know, I could see that the, the entire year is could be going on with this, you know, and even until next summer, this, this could be going on. I asked Ligia to stop translating for a moment and tell me if that's what she's seeing in terms of jobs coming into the center. Are they now starting to come to you for demolition, cons- demolition and reconstruction? And reconstruction. So, actually, one of the sites that we will be going on today. Um, it's actually one of the two workers that started doing cleanup, and now they're doing uh, reconstruction. Okay. So they're switching now. Yeah. And do you think a year is accurate? I think this this can really go on for, for at least three years more. Three years? Yeah. Um, just think, one, FEMA is, is moving slowly um, to cover payments, yeah. and I think some of the neighborhoods are really rethinking about whether they're going to rebuild their homes and how long they will wait for to do that. Some of the neighborhoods are moving faster. Um, like Seagate was one of the first neighborhoods that um, the day laborers at the Bay Park Community Job Center responded quickly to do the cleanup. And they were done before even other communities. Mm-hmm. And so it really depends um, on the income of those communities and how fast the communities want to move forward. So, like, for instance, Rockaways is one of the communities that was the most impacted, and it really lasts, like, three years because they have to rebuild. Some of them have to rebuild entire homes. And the process of doing that, it's not an easy process. But we know, like, the first 
this year and next year, we know that there's going to be work. Sean Cole will continue his tour of the work that's available for day laborers in New York in just a minute. Also on the program today, Dominic Brocato talks about the trouble he's had finding work after a career in human resources, hiring and firing and counseling people. He lost his job and can't find a way back in. I'm Dick Gordon from APM, American Public Media. This is The Story. I'm Dick Gordon. This is The Story. And this is our series, Reworking. Our producer, Sean Cole, is looking at how Hurricane Sandy is helping some people find work in New York. Is this us? Yeah. We head out to the Rockaways by bus at about 11. It takes more than an hour, maybe 90 minutes. It's the longest inner-city bus trip I've ever taken. None of this coastal New York City is familiar to me. A lot of it is suburban, beachy, and not city-like at all. After Hurricane Sandy hit, the Bay Parkway Community Job Center went out and had flyers made up that say, Workers Available, Hurricane Relief. If it's true that every crisis yields a germ of opportunity, this is a prime example of that. Lihia and the others have been hanging flyers on doorknobs all over New York, and particularly in the Rockaways. Are we here? We debus in Rockaway Park. And the only person on the street except us is wearing construction gear and a gray sweatshirt that says 1994 across the front, the year Hurricane Andrew devastated Florida. Adjusted for inflation, Sandy might have upset Andrew as the second costliest hurricane in U.S. history behind Katrina. We walk around looking for the house that one of the job center members is fixing up. There's a polite eeriness to this place. Leafy branches are still bunched up on the median strip. Porta potties loiter on the corner. This is where, like, the cleanup is going very slowly. Uh, oh yeah. In, in this neighborhood. Why so slow here? Um, I don't know. A lot of the homes that have not been cleaned is because they don't want nothing to be touched until the insurance will determine whether it's going to cover, how much it's going to covered. Right. And they want to have proof of how much they have lost some nice homes down here. Oh, it's it's that way. We've walked past it. Yeah, a lot of them are beautiful homes. There's one with a waterfall in the front. (laughs) Yeah. We finally find the house we're looking for, a white colonial with three dormers on the side. A worker named Victoriano meets us in the walkway. He's from Mexico. Buenas, Victoriano, ¿cómo está? This is Victoriano, one of the members. Hi, great to meet you. How are you? And he must have a magnet in his pocket because about a dozen black screws are clinging to the outside of his jeans as if by magic. He leads us down into the basement. Basement here. Brand new wooden framing slats line the perimeter of it. It's like being in the ribcage of a square whale. And what happened to the basement? Did did it flood? Was there any... So uh, when we came here, we actually came to do the reconstruction. Somebody else yet did already the cleanup. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as you can see, the water, um, I heard that the water went all the way on to the top. He steps on the end of his tape measure and worms it up to the ceiling. Wow. 
So that's just 90 inches? Yeah, 90 inches. 90 inches of water all the way up to the ceiling of the basement. He said it came one inch uh, more to the first floor. Oh, really? So up above here, there was like a puddle on the floor. I removed the old wood and I put a new wood. Like, for instance, the water damaged a lot of the wood. ¿Puede mostrar lo que se dañó? Look, the water damaged all this. Oh, God, look at that. That wood is rotten. I'm going to finish this entire like basement and reconstruction, rebuild everything. This Yourself? Yes, myself. Everything, change the windows, everything, no? Like, finish the house, no? How much does is it pay? So I'm only charging her right now to do the framing and all the she only a one eighty for the day. One eighty a day. Mm-hmm. Is that more than you would have made before the storm? So what has happened is that before I used to charge um, one twenty, uh, one thirty, one fifty, but now after the storm, after Sandy, I I have had to charge more for this type of work. Sí, tengo mucho trabajo ahorita. Ahorita ahorita me están esperando mucha gente. Yo no puedo terminar aquí hasta termine, tengo que ir a agarrar otro trabajo. I have all the clients that are waiting for me as well to do to help them out to do a lot of work. That's great. That's great and yet it's so sad. Yes, it's sad, but that's why we're putting a lot of our hard work to make sure that they're happy and they get their homes back as well. Um, and, and so hopefully they will be happy too. Do you know of workers who have, um, because of the storm, they've actually come to New York from other states or even other countries? I have seen that a lot of workers from Pennsylvania have come here, Mm. especially in Rockaway Park. Like big companies from Rockaway Park, they have come down here. Oh, really? Because there is a lot of demand of work that need to to get done. This is like ground zero for day laboring right now. Victoriano walks us over to the laundry room, which is relatively finished. Oh, you did all this? Yes, yourself? everything, everything. Just you? Yeah. Wow, when the tiling too? Everything, everything. Look at this. New tile, new sheetrock. Just then a young Dominican woman in a turtleneck sweater and trench coat appears at the doorway. She's the boss. That is, it's her house. Her name's Nia Nicholas, and handing her repairs over to this job center this makes her feel good. I'd rather give it to them than to give it to a contractor who's just going to take some of the money for himself and not pay some people. <laughs> so we know that. Uh-huh. Um, we actually, un- unfortunately, about six, seven years ago had a fire here. And the contractor definitely did that to us and did a lot of bad work here. Did bad work and charged more? Yes. I see. Um, so definitely they're very hard workers and we're very happy with his work so far. Uh-huh. And and the fire was here in the basement? Yes, it was wow. in the basement. So, this, so that guy was doing pretty much the same stuff that yes. he's doing now and it cost a lot more. Over 100000 over a hundred thousand for the base. Wow! <laughs> I believe the insurance paid about one hundred and forty thousand or something, and the work was not nowhere near, you know, as thorough as he's doing and as good as he's doing so far. How did you find out about the center? They left the flyer oh, in really? our mailbox. Oh, so the flyering worked. Yeah, there you Absolutely. go. So we came to do it again. Uh-huh. That's why. <laughs> it did work. What did you yeah. have down here? 
It was a fully finished basement. It was an office there, laundry room. Oh, you're bath, kidding. Oh. Fully finished. It wasn't just storage. No, it was fully finished. We had the family room over there. The, here we had a kitchenette and, you know, the kids' playroom. Did, were you able to get the stuff out other than oh, the. No. 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 no, no, no. Yeah, everything was lost. Yeah. All my shoes collection. Really? <laughs> out of everything. How many shoes did you have? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I don't know, but it was a lot of shoes. You know, we've been talking all day about how, like, there's these two opposite things happening where, like, on the one hand, day laborers are getting a lot more work, and and that's great for them, and, you know, they're making more money than before, and and that's sustaining, Mm -hmm. but it's because of this terrible thing that happened. Absolutely. You know. Absolutely. And there's a lot of people getting a lot of work now. But at the same time, there's a lot of people that lost their jobs. So, you know, in the area, a lot of um, commercial spaces are still closed. So, you know, it kind of weighs out. Unfortunately, a lot of our, I'm in real estate, so a lot of our commercial uh, properties are really taking a hit. Oh, God, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that's, this is maybe the worst time to be in real estate. Yes and no. I see myself as helping all my neighbors mm-hmm. because it... When they have questions as to how to finish space, I go help them. Or if they need to get out of a situation, sell their property, they call me. So really, I'm here to help them or help them find a place. Um, If their house is damaged, I can find them a rental. So really, you know, however I can help my community. So this is created work for you as well. Absolutely. Wow, how about that? So, you know, not that it's created. It's just, you know, my energy is now focused on a different. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm here to help, you know, the community so that that. Helps me too, you know, feel good. <laughs> Nia tells Victoriano there's food upstairs for him if he's hungry. The rest of us climb back up to the street, and as I head to the bus stop to make the epic trip home, Ligia runs up the next door neighbor's front steps and hangs a flyer on their doorknob. This is Sean Cole in New York. listening to the story and our week-long series, Reworking. Last month, we spoke with Linda Archer about her job. She works at McDonald's in Times Square. She earns around $130 a week, and she lives with her mother in the Bronx. She's 59. Linda is one of the fast food workers in New York who's joined an effort to bring in a union. She thinks that's the best way to get a decent raise and some benefits. She helped collect signatures and protested outside her McDonald's in Times Square. Everyone saw her, including her boss. That's when I felt a, a little pressured. They were constantly on my back, watching my every move. Even if I was to talk to a person, you know, in another area in the back, there was somebody standing there. What am I talking about? They was asking the other person, what did I want huh. once I would leave the area? Uh, also, I felt a little demoted. Uh, normally, I'm a cashier. 
I found myself working on French fries, and I was there constantly. So, you know, I said, well, I don't know what's going on here. I'm a cashier. Why am I constantly working in a grill area? So did you say to the manager, oh, what's with the French fries? Yeah, I, I asked him. <laughs> he, he's, I asked him. I said, you know, I'm constantly on French fries. I said, what's the problem here? He said, you got to stay here. I said, why? You know, he, they, they just walk away from you. <laughs> we checked back with Linda about whether she's made any progress on better pay. She told me that right before Christmas, she and two other protesters were called into a meeting with the owner of the McDonald's restaurant where she works. He wanted to talk to us about um, an increase in wages, that there was, uh, you know, he said, let's face it, everybody knows about the rally that, you know, took place outside, and that he was saying that uh, I'm aware that they're asking for uh, $15 an hour. He said, but as an owner, I cannot pay you $15 an hour. He pulled out the calculator and said, right now for the 14 stores, I'm paying out now 4,000 hours. He added up uh, $4,000 times 15 and was over a million dollars a week, and he said that he could not do it. He could not afford to do it. I told him that he could step up, and he can make changes, and he can talk to his franchise uh, buddies as well as, you know, corporate, and, you know, we can make this happen. He told me no. Now, wait a second. He runs 14 McDonald's, is that right? He has 14 stores, yes. Okay. So he's telling you that that's 4,000 hours. Did he tell you how much money? He's pulling in at those 14 stores. No, he did not tell me how much money he was pulling in, but he was saying to me, he said, let's make it clear that the $5.5 billion that McDonald made uh, for the year, you know, that's not, you know, his, you know, these are all of the stores. This is what he was saying. This is all a corporate, you know, so he he wanted to make that clear to me that, you know, don't get the idea that I'm, I'm, I have, I'm making $5.5 billion a year. He said, no, I that's why I can't do it. So he says. And were you and were the three of you talking to him about the the pressure, the long hours, the the hard work, that sort of yeah, thing? Yeah, the girls are much younger, so they're like uh, nineteen, twenty. And one is about nineteen, the other one is in their uh, is in her twenties, and she was. They were saying that uh, they feel that is uh, too too demanding. You're staying with these protests, though. Yeah, I'm staying with the protests. Yes. It's, it's, it's as long as I can, you know, and I will continue, you know, to stay with this fight. Linda Archer says that owners don't need to rely on so many part-time workers like her. She thinks if they paid fewer employees, higher wages, and kept them on full-time, workers and managers might both be better off. Phoebe Judge is here with me in the studio now. Phoebe's been producing this series. Hi, Phoebe. Hi, Dick. And we got a voicemail that was pretty well right on this subject. Tell me about that. Yeah, well, we've been hearing from a lot of people who are over 40. Some people say that you have a hard time getting a job now if you're over 50, but even people over 40 who who have been writing and calling in and saying, I don't know what to do. And uh, one of those listeners is Rebecca Reimers. She called in from Brandon, Vermont, and she had a, another kind of fast food story. I wanted to say that I have two Ivy League degrees. I was a high school social studies teacher for 14 years, took 10 years off to raise my kids. And when it was time to go back to work, there were no teaching jobs. I'm now working at minimum wage at an upscale fast food restaurant um, and discovering that it's a whole new world out there when you're 47 and you're starting an entry-level position with high school students as your peers. Thank you. 
That's Rebecca Reimers. And Phoebe, we also focus this week on the troubles of those just out of college. Susan Steinhardt from Cincinnati wrote in to say, and here's what she, here's her letter. She said, this story was very timely as I watched my daughter's ongoing struggle to find full-time employment. She completed her dual master's program in May 2011. And after a brief internship in another county, she began to look in earnest for full-time work as an archivist. The most frustrating factor has been the absolute lack of response from most firms that she's applied to. These were not cold calls, but applications to posted positions. There's rarely a confirmation of receipt of an application or any kind of follow-up. As a former director at a Fortune 500 firm, I am stunned at this lack of professionalism and courtesy shown by major corporations and other large organizations. With today's technology, says Susan, surely it would be simple to at least have an automated response. I speculate that as the job market improves, many firms will find their reputation may be tarnished and employees may be harder to find as a result. But Phoebe, we also heard from people who are trying to, how would you say this, creatively weather the loss of a job or a career. It wasn't all negative. I mean, this is a this is a hard topic that that we've been trying to cover. But people did write in to share their own stories of of surviving and thriving uh, after this recession. Uh, we heard a lot. Uh, Patrick Palmer wrote in from New Haven, Vermont, to say, "I've always believed that life is short, so you should find something you like to do and make that your job." I like draft horses, so we have a horse-drawn trash and recycling pickup route in the town of Bristol, Vermont. We also use horses and a carriage for wedding transport, wagon rides for special events, sleigh rides in the winters, and logging. Since you have to moonlight in Vermont, I also work as a carpenter in slow times. And Frank Hyman wrote in to say, I haven't had a day job in 20 years because I figured out how to make a comfortable living from my eight avocations that I've brought up to a professional level. Woodworking, stonemasonry, photography, writing, design, gardening, sculpture, politics, and running my mouth, generally. And Frank goes on to say, I recently made $351 in three hours' time foraging mushrooms and selling them to five restaurants. So I guess that now makes nine professional avocations. So, Phoebe, kind of a mix, right, of people who are glass half full and others who are really having a difficult time. Yes, and and Susan Steinhardt, the letter that you read, she read about her kind of outrage at how HR professionals are dealing with people trying to get a job, not calling back, and that's kind of exactly what our next guest will be talking about. about Right, this is Dominic Bracato, and Dominic was in human resources all of his working life. Now he's out of a job, and he can't figure out why people are so uncivil. But we'll hear from him in just a moment. Phoebe, thanks for coming in. Nice to share the mail with you. Happy to do it. I'm Dick Gordon. From APM, American Public Media, this is The Story. Support for The Story comes from Red Hat, an enterprise open source company that works within communities to create technology the open source way. RedHat.com. I'm Dick Gordon. This is the story. Dominic Bracato didn't see it coming. He worked for the same company in Kansas City for 20 years as an HR manager. In early 2010, he was laid off. That's almost three years ago, and he still doesn't have a job. Not for lack of trying. 
It seems like Dominic has done everything he can to better himself and to find new work. He didn't even take time off to recover from the blow of being laid off. The day after, he was trying to figure out what to do, and he decided one of the best things would be to take people out to lunch. When you, when you just call and say, hey, I'd like to meet for coffee and so forth, that really wasn't working for me. Uh, so I started, um, you know, offering the opportunity to buy lunch. And I say, hey, you know, how about I take you to lunch and we just kind of brainstorm and that sort of thing. So that's what I did for the first year, to be honest with you. Um, and these people you were taking to lunch, they knew that you were without work. They knew that yes, this was a chance yes. for you to sort of tap into their network, right? And they were okay that's, with that's, that? That's correct. And yeah. they were. And a lot of them, you know, uh, allowed me to, uh, you know, we linked in together using, you know, using that particular resource that's available. Uh, they gave me the opportunity to look at their contacts and to, you know, introduce me to other types of uh of people that were part of their contacts, and uh, you know, I got a, I got a lot of meetings from that. Uh, again, the majority of people that would take me up on meeting meeting were the ones where I would offer to buy lunch. Um, after after about a year or so, and after about spending probably in excess of six thousand dollars in buying lunches and so forth, I realized that I, I wasn't I couldn't nor would I continue to do that type of thing. Uh, because, um, you know, and I know people that I tell that to get frustrated and say, you know, why would somebody who knows you're unemployed, first off, allow you to do that? Um, yeah, I was and, thinking the same thing myself. Yeah. Most of these people were working, right? The people you took They to were working, and yeah, most people would then come back and say, you know, they could easily buy you lunch, put it on their expense account. And I understood that. But on the other hand, I said, hey, I, I extended the offer, so I at this point can't complain. Yes, I was surprised. You know, that that uh, there was only, uh, you know, honestly, I could say uh, on one hand, the number of people that would either say, no, I will buy lunch or no, you know, let's split it. Uh, but the majority of people would, you know, go ahead and, um, you know, and, and have me pay for the lunch, you know. And at the time, it, in my mind, it wasn't that big a deal. I was living off of my severance. You know, I've been with the company for a long time. I got a decent severance package. So, uh, you know, I really wasn't thinking about it until – you know, at the end of that first year and I was doing my taxes and, and so forth and looking at some of those types of expenses, I thought, you know, am I am I really being the fool at this point? If people really want to help me, do I have to pay this much money to, you know, to get people's help? So, Well, uh, the other part of know. it is probably, I don't know, I, I won't put words in your mouth, you probably didn't expect to be unemployed for a full year, right? No, and not at all at that point. I felt that my skill set with uh, the variety of different things I, I did, uh, that it was going to be no big deal and I would find a job very quickly. And I honestly, I honestly believed that, you know, probably for the first year and a half. And then, you know, I started, uh, you know, every, no matter where I went, I would, you know, start networking. I mean, if I was, you know, at a shoe store, if I was at a major department store, you know, I would always ask, and I would find out that majority of the salespeople that I interacted with were people in my own situation that were, you know, now selling women's shoes. And, you know, in the back of my mind, you know, I felt so sorry for them. And I, you know, was telling myself, you know, that's that's never going to happen to me. There really must be something wrong for this person not to be able to find a job. Now I'm I'm feeling so guilty that I had some of those feelings because I'm now realizing 
there was absolutely nothing wrong with them, you know. Well, it not was, only that, if someone offered you that job now, you'd probably take it, right? And I and you're, that's that's very true, you know. I mean, I have, uh, you know, uh, you know, after after I did this for almost two years, uh, it'll be three years in February now that I've been unemployed. Uh, started looking for part time jobs and uh, and thought, okay, you know, I will try to find something at Starbucks, at Costco, at places such as this. You know, could not even get an interview after going through multiple. Um, you know, multiple times, I would actually then start going into the Starbucks and small talking with the managers and small talking with the people that work there, you know, trying to see, uh, you know, how, how do you get how do you get hired? Yeah. What, what actually do you have to do? Who do you have to know? And, and that sort of thing. And, and did you learn anything doing that? You know, I I basically learned that there were so many people like me that were looking for jobs, that they were inundated, and in most cases they ended up hiring just referrals of people uh, when when they did have an opening. And then they also said that there were not – there's not that many openings because after people start working there – there and at Costco that they don't leave right. because the pay is well, they're nice to the people, all of those sort of things. You let, know, let me come I back also to something learned, you said. Just, you said there are so many people like me. What do you mean like you? Like me that are in – at the time, they were in their 50s and unemployed. That they – you know, when they, they would uh, have one opening, they could get three to 600 applications for somebody – to work uh, as, uh, you know, a barista at, at Starbucks. And that was overwhelming to them uh, because, again, you know, have people that have had a college degree and have worked, you know, 20-plus years at a, in, a, in a role where they made decent money and so forth want to be doing something such as that. And I don't think a lot of the people that were doing the interviewing knew how to deal with that. They didn't know how to deal with interviewing someone who looked like or represented their father or, in some cases, their grandfather. Because, again, the majority of people right now that are doing the hiring out there are in their 20s, uh, coming right out of college and so forth. And so they see people that look like us, you know, us meaning myself, uh, you know, that has uh, some gray hair and so forth, they kind of turn when you go to these career fairs more or less feeling, you know, please don't stop here because I'm not going to give you the time of day. So, did, tell me something. Did you did you come across situations, either yourself or in, in talking with other people, where you were able to conclude that, that recruiters and, and people who are doing the hiring now can be that? Uh, mean can be that choosy when it comes to just discarding whole groups of people. Yes, I mean I have I have learned and I have realized how much discrimination is going on, which never happened before. I mean, and uh, and how how they're getting away with it is amazing to me. I just wish somebody would tell me some of the things that I've heard. Some people being told, you know, as an example, there's a, a woman that um, uh, is also um, uh, same age as myself. Um, she's a year younger than me. She's 60. And uh, she, uh, 
she's gone on multiple um, interviews and, and has not been able to secure a job. And finally, with one of the last interviews she went on, you know, she asked the woman who was a contract recruiter, you know, why are you not considering me? And she goes, are you really serious? She told her, look at yourself. And she goes, okay, what does that mean? Look at myself. And she said, well, first off, your eyebrows. I'd never hire somebody that had eyebrows. She says, why aren't you coloring your eyebrows? And apparently she had gray, you know, in her eyebrows and was telling her that, again, implying because of her age. Uh, I had another woman who told me that, uh, you know, she was told because of her appearance that she was very dated looking in reference to her hairstyle and the way she dressed. You're not saying they're old, but you're saying they're old and you're and you're discriminating. I was going to say so that that's pretty close to a legal definition of discrimination based on age, right? No, it, and it it very much is so. But I think you know you get to the point where you have lost so much self respect, and and you feel self conscious about yourself when you have not worked for two plus years that you accept it and say, I guess something is wrong with me. You're listening to the story. Dominic Bricado is spending his retirement savings while he waits for work, and it's taking a toll. My financial planner knew that I, my intent was to work till I was 70, so everything that we put in place was for those reasons. You didn't, you know, I never imagined at 58 I was going to have to start living off of my money. So, uh, you know, I probably just been finished meeting. putting your kids through college, and this was the time to yes, save. Yes, right? my last son, my yeah, that, and that's the funny part is my last son uh, was just, you know, going to graduate in May, and, you know, we thought finally we can start breathing. You know, and, and doing saving. things for ourselves <laughs> and traveling, and then I lose my job in February. So uh, it was a uh, you know it was it was a strange a strange course of how things happened. Thank goodness you know that if it was going to happen, it happened. You know when when he was ready to finish college, as opposed to I, I put three kids uh, through college. So uh, you know it would have been more devastating with um, you know if it would have happened after my first son or right. second, you know, so... Uh, so, Dominic, were you able to afford to continue paying for stuff like health insurance while you were unemployed? The uh, the health insurance, you know, after COBRA ends was, was devastating to me, devastating from the standpoint, and that's what really drained a lot of my 401k, is that because I had a pre-existing condition, uh, I could not get health insurance. And I know a lot of people, and either pe- even people that that read the blog and so forth said, uh, you know, you know, stop fooling yourself and stop feeling sorry for yourself. You know, there are uh, state pools that have to give you insurance. So don't continue to tell people that you can't find insurance. Um, so and so I back responded, up a bit. Now, you got you had a pre-existing condition, so you chose not to buy health insurance or the, or what you bought just wound up being really expensive? No, I could, I could not. After COBRA ended, I, I could not get anyone to insure me. So I had to go through the state pool in order to get insurance uh, initially. Now, the state pool, it was going to be $1,811 a month for me to have medical insurance only with high deductibles. Wow. So again, when people say that there's things out there, yes, absolutely they are, and thank goodness there are. But on the other hand, how many people can afford $1,811 a month to have medical insurance when you're not working? 
you know, I, I was I was paying all of that money out and and going for, you know, j- just to have medical insurance. But I I couldn't I couldn't risk not having that, you know, just because of some of the medical things that I had gone through. And so, um, you know, now, um, you know, because of 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 some of the things that that I have I have gone through uh, in relationship to uh, having cancer and so forth, that. Uh, I am now on uh, disability and uh, have uh, Medicare uh, that has uh, started up. And so... uh, How did you you make the shift to disability from that big payment? I mean, did someone say, wait a second, there's an alternative here? Yes, I had, um, you know, I had uh, been talking with someone who had suggested, you know, did I ever consider going on disability? And I said, no. I said, why, why, why would I think that? Uh, you know, I had had, I had, had a, a rare form of cancer that had developed in my leg uh, five years ago and, um, and uh, had a 12-inch by 2-inch malignant tumor removed and, and uh, had radiation, all that kind of stuff, and, you know, thought I was home free. Uh, but again, um, you know, after I lost my job, uh, you know, to add to all of the other challenges in life, you know, I found out that that, that particular cancer then had moved to my lung. And uh, whenever uh, I learned that whenever a cancer metastasizes from one place to another, it always moves and it's always considered to be stage four. And so for those reasons, when everything was turned in to, um, you know, to um, uh, disability and they saw that I had uh, stage four lung cancer, then, um, you know, my disability was approved fairly quickly. Um, Anyway, I will find out in January whether it was successful or not. If, If one thing that we've learned through this recession is just how unbelievably difficult it is and has been for people you know, 50 and older, to get rehired. If that's one truth that we're able to take away from this recession, is there any way you can make the case to HR people, to company presidents, to to say, you know, you got to think twice before you let that person who's 56 go because she's not going to find another work. He He's not going to get hired somewhere else. I mean, and yes, I mean, I think they can see by, you know, when you go, I'm, I'm part of or have been part of uh, uh, five different networking groups where we've all tried, you know, to look for positions and help each other. And everyone, the majority of everyone, and when I say the majority, I would say 80 percent of the people in there, you know, are are in their late 40s or their 50s. And we're the ones that are being targeted. We made more money. Uh, and again, because when you've been with some a company for 20 years, obviously you, you get to the point of, of making a decent salary. And, and it appears that we are the first ones then that are looked at that's going to make an immediate impact on the bottom line with, uh, you know, with our salaries and, and, and health insurance. And obviously our health insurance, you know, who, who doesn't have some type of preexisting condition or has something, whether it's even just high blood pressure. You know, when you when you're you get to the point of being in your 40s and above, so I think uh, I, I think they're looking at it. I think the people making the decisions are looking at it from that standpoint and deciding that you know we're we're the easiest solution, and but they're not taking into account 
what then they are doing to us, how how they're jeopardizing us, and how this is putting such a negative impact on on society, you know, when we do get to the point of not being able to provide for ourselves. And I mean, that's all I think any of us want to do is, you know, we don't want to look to the government or someone else to, you know, to continue to have to pay us. And, you know, people have told me you need to get on food stamps and so forth. I can't do that right now. I'm not willing to do that right now. Uh, And again, I think it's a sense of pride and so forth. And people have said I'm foolish, you know, but, you know, I, I was raised, you know, to provide for myself and my family and not look to anyone else. And I'm continuing to do that. And I think the majority of people in my situation and in my age group are continuing to do that. And, and you know, that's, that's, not, that's not valued by anyone at this point. And that's the part that's so sad. And some way, some way the senior executives and companies have to realize this when decisions are being made. Dominic Bricado is still waiting to hear about his cancer prognosis. He joined me from Kansas City. We had a lot of help with our series, Reworking, Jobs in America. D.W. Gibson's book, Not Working, helped give us direction and access to guests. Todd Melby helped us from the oil fields of North Dakota, and Sean Cole was in New York. Phoebe Judge was the producer here who helped pull it all together. The story is also produced this week by Rachel McCarthy, Andrew Parsons, Lauren Sporer, and Jorge Valencia. Our engineers are Russ Henry and Al Wadarski. Freddie Jenkins handles our quality control. Our intern is Caroline Pate. Our director is Carol Jackson. Our senior producer is Katie Davis. And you'll note that the name of our editor, Corey Princell, is not included here. That's because she's busy with something else right now. She and Stefan are the proud new parents of Felix Pierre Gary. And those of us here at The Story send our best wishes to all three of them. Our program is supported by the people who listen to WUNC North Carolina Public Radio at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And we're supported through your contribution to your local public radio station. I'm Dick Gordon. This is The Story. Support for The Story comes from the Redwoods Group Foundation, collaborating with Darkness to Light and local YMCAs to prevent child sexual abuse in America. D, the number 2L.org. This story is a production of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC, a broadcast service of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And this is APM, American Public Media.